Well, let's turn now to God's words. Romans 15, verses 1 to 13. And before we read, let's bow our heads again in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word thanking you for it and the access we have to it. We pray that as we gather now to hear your word preached, you'd open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to see all that you would say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul has been talking about uh, those who are weak and those who are strong in chapter 14, and we'll say more about that in a moment, but um, verse 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. We who are, are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his goods to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, for Christ did, uh, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever is written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, and in accord with Jesus Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, praise the Lord, O you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So we've been looking at the... Uh, these closing chapters of the book of Romans. Um, Paul's been writing to Rome. Uh, He's never been to Rome. He's on his way to Rome, as we'll see later in the chapter, Um, and at some other time. But he's he's going to make his way there, and he's intending to go to Spain. And he's written uh, this letter to them to kind of prepare the way. It's like a it's like a missionary letter, but probably unlike any other missionary letter you've ever heard before. Uh, the whole book of Romans. And we have found that Paul has taken his time to uh, expound the gospel from chapters 1 to 11. And as he has done so, he then moves into uh, chapter 12 and begins with a therefore, which means that everything that follows after this uh, is the implication of the gospel that he's preached in one, uh, or explained in chapters 1 to 11. And so from 12 onwards, there's this uh, 
practical uh, list of practical implications for uh, the church. And it's really important that we see that this is not simply um, an afterthought that Paul has. You know, I've explained all the gospel to you and that's all you need. But, oh, by the way, uh, just a couple of little practical tips and tricks to help you get along a bit better. Um, Actually, all of this, everything he says from chapter 12, flows out of the gospel that he's been preaching. And the implications of the the life-changing transformation that happens. The, The work of Christ has changed everything. And the Holy Spirit has come and freed men and women from being under the power of sin. And being slaves to sin, slaves to sinfulness, to now being under grace, under Jesus Christ. A new king, a new kingdom. It's like they've, as I've said before, you've kind of emigrated from one country to another and now you've got to learn all the the ways of the new kingdom in this uh, wonderful state of grace that you're in. So all these implications flow out of the power of the gospel into our lives. And that power of the gospel brings about our complete salvation. As we've seen, it's a salvation that begins in eternity past and carries us all the way through to eternity future. And in the middle of it, God intervenes by sending Christ to come into history And then later on, in fullness of time, God comes by his spirit through the gospel to us personally. And we receive him. And we receive a new life. And we become new people in Christ. So where God seems to break into our lives. Isn't it an amazing thing? Isn't it a wonderful thing? When you reflect back on how you became a Christian, that God would break into your life somehow. Uh, For many of us, we didn't want it. Some of you have had no choice. You've been growing up in a Christian family. But one day, we'll all bless God. He broke into our lives in various ways. And he received us. And took us and gave us to his son, Jesus Christ. And we've been transformed. So that we can now um, accept and approve of the will of God for our lives. That we can say that this will of God for our lives is, is perfect and acceptable to us. So it's no surprise then, when you think about how this gospel works out, that Paul expects us to take seriously the imperatives, the commands, instructions, exhortations that he gives us in these chapters. And chapters 12 through to 15, verse 13, uh, he's particularly concerned about relations within the church. Uh, you know, how do church members get on with one another? How do we help one another? How do we encourage one another and so on? And so I'm going to look at this passage. I'm not going to look at all of it. I think it's too much. I think if you want, I don't know if this is helpful, but uh, there are... There are kind of two movements, and in each move in this passage I read, and in each movement there are kind of three phases. So I don't know if that's too complicated. 
you think of a three and then a three, there's two movements, one after the other. But one to six, the first movement is in one to six. And the second movement is from seven to 13. And within those two sections, there's three phases. Each of them has three phases. Uh, the first phase is an imperative, and a, a commandment, if you like. And you can see them there in verse 2. Uh, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then in verse 7, in the second section, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I think the, if you've got an ESV, there's a kind of section division after verse 7. Personally, I think it should come after 6. Just easier. Um, but take or leave it. So there's imperatives. Then it moves on to, which leads us to Christ himself. It's always really important that when we see imperatives, commandments, we move to Christ. And we start thinking about Christ. Because you can't, you can't do anything without Christ. And his strength and his power. That's why we need to be saved, isn't it? Um, we're lost in our sin and we need to be saved. None of us can ever be righteous by ourselves. We need a saviour. And so when we're, and even as Christians, we need to continually be turning to Jesus Christ. Facing him. Looking at him. And it's as we see his glory as we were thinking this morning. He, he changes our lives from one degree of glory to another. And then the third uh, phase, if you like, is, is a vision that Paul presents uh, for the lives of his believers. Um, uh, I should have read some verses earlier, but we'll move on. <laughs> um, about how they are to... So, a vision for the lives of his believers. So, verses 5 and 6... Uh, he has this kind of wish, doesn't he? May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, right at the end, uh, 13, may the God of uh, hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So I want to just work through those three uh, phases, if you like. First of all, let's think about the commands here. Uh, not to please yourself, but to welcome one another. That command to not please yourself in verse 2 is founded upon an obligation that's put upon the strong to bear with the weakness of the weak. Now, we've already looked at this notion of the idea of the weak believer and the strong believer. And we've talked about the idea of being a weak believer. Uh, but, and having strong faith. Uh, weak faith. Let me just think about weak faith for a second. Weak faith is when you come to church unencumbered with baggage from your past life. Uh, so not unencumbered, but encumbers. <laughs> Weak faith is when you come to church and you're encumbered by baggage from your past life. And you have certain things that bind your conscience. And there is a weakness in your faith. 
And yet, at the same time, it is not founded upon the truth of the gospel. And so here you have a case of somebody who is, uh, has weak faith, because it's not founded on the, on the gospel, but at the same time can have strong convictions about things. Right? Now this is a bit of a paradox. Because sometimes Christians get mixed up thinking that because somebody has strong convictions about something, it might look like it's got strong faith. That person's got strong faith. Have a strong conviction about something, he must have strong faith. But actually, Paul is not quite so sh- is not sure about that at all. In fact, he thinks the opposite. Sometimes people with strong convictions about things are because they have weak faith and they're not actually sure, so they double down on it. And so you can just imagine when, you know, the issue for the Romans is you've got Gentiles who've come in from a, a background, a pagan background perhaps, Gentiles who've become Christians. They've been used to sacrificing food to idols and uh, they become Christians and they realize that they can leave all of that behind. They don't have to worry uh, about, uh, about their food any longer, about who or what it's uh, it's been offered to, it's food, it comes from God, and give thanks to God for it, they can eat it. And yet, on the other side, you've, you've got converted Jews who have uh, brought up in the, the cleanliness laws and the laws and the food laws, and they have an issue with those former pagans eating food that's sacrificed to idols. And they don't understand the gospel, and they've got a weak faith, but they've got a strong conviction about the food. They shouldn't eat it. Whereas the Gentiles are thinking, can't we just leave all that behind with Jesus? But the strong, the so-called strong Christians, and Paul counts himself amongst them, we who are strong, verse 1, they have come to realize that there is, to realize the liberty, freedom that they have in Jesus Christ. That they can eat whatever they want. As long as they give thanks to God. It's just good food to give thanks for. Or they can realize that. That old Testament ceremonial law is fulfilled in Christ. It was all pointing to him. And now that we have Christ. We don't need the old Testament ceremonial law any longer. They realize it. That's That's a Jew who's become a Christian. And realizes the significance of Christ. Now the point is that in, in, in just working through all this and thinking through all this is that whether you're a weak Christian or a strong Christian, whatever, however you want to define it, uh, one's views on these kinds of matters can generate tensions and divisions in the church. And Christians can become unwelcoming, unloving, quarrelsome, grumpy, snooty, so-and-sos. <laughs> Any of those here this evening? And that may be satisfying to your ego if you're like that, because you're just always pointing out things to people. What's wrong with them? (laughs) You may, in your own mind, you may formulate convincing justifications as to why you should point all these things out to people. Paul 
Paul actually takes us in an opposite direction. Now, of course, he's not talking about the gospel here. He's not talking about the, the fundamentals of the gospel. He's talking about personal preferences that have been brought into the church. People have convictions about personal preferences. And Paul takes us in a different direction. He's, he says that the obligation that is upon us is to please not ourselves, but to please others in the church. Now, what does it mean to, to please somebody in the church? To please your neighbor? Doesn't it mean something like this? That it brings us... Sm- Here's a test. <laughs> that it, your behavior and your actions, they bring a smile to other Christians. That there's a joy about meeting you and engaging with you. As you speak to them or as you do something for them, you, they break out into a smile and they love the fact that you're being so kind to them and welcoming them. Now, everybody's here this evening to worship God. But just think about what... So you're here to focus on God, but let me just think about the other dimension. What about these other people who are with you worshipping God this evening? Have you come here with a view to do something or say something to these other people? It might help them, bring a smile to their face to please them? And the sad fact is that, that most people when they come to church or meet with other Christians for something, uh, they tend to look at what they can get out of a service like this. What am I going to get out of this service? How am I going to be blessed? How am I going to be pleased with what I experience here? And if you're new to an area and you want to go and find a new church, you might fall into that habit of saying, what is that church going to give me as I go to this church? Well, maybe you're already, as you all are, you're in a church already. You're mingling with people, but you're constantly wondering, what am I getting out of this? What am I getting out of this? Can I just say, that is, you're, you're totally missing the point. You're, you're a person of weak faith, can I say? You have no idea what you're doing here. If, if that's your issue, what am I getting out of this? You have no idea what you're doing here. You're here for all the wrong reasons. When I was a, when I was a young lad... Believe it or not, I was once. My parents used to take me and my brother to visit our relatives, especially to my two grandmothers. And uh, uh, one of my grandmothers uh, lived in our own home. And uh, I used to really enjoy going to visit my grandmother on a Saturday, late afternoon, have dinner, spend the evening there. We'd visit on Saturday night, have our tea um, and after tea, adults would go into the sitting room and have adult conversations. And me and my brother, uh, we would uh, play in the other room, watch TV, have an endless supply, it seemed, of Coca-Cola and crisps. <laughs> uh, my grandmother was very kind. <laughs> and it was great. I loved going. I loved it. My other grandmother, uh, for almost all the time that I can remember her, lived in a residential home. We would visit on Sunday afternoon, sometimes. There was no TV, no Coca-Cola, no crisps. 
Instead, we had to engage in conversation. You know, and grandparents, you want to know about your grandchildren. I'm a new grandparent. (laughs) I want to know what's happening. (laughs) Some of you have done this for longer. You want to know about your grandchildren. You want to ask them questions. You want to talk to them. And as little kids, sometimes we can't be bothered. You know, isn't that true? Well, you're smiling. (laughs) Sometimes we just don't want to do it. I'd rather be somewhere else, watching TV, eating crisps and drinking Coke. And to my shame, you know, I look back on that, to my shame, I was, I was interested in visiting one grandmother, not particularly interested in visiting the other. Why? Because I was thinking about what I was going to get out of it. And sometimes we think about the church like that. I'm not sure I like this church, I think I'll try and find another one. And you end up being the kind of person that seems to float around. And you actually make a virtue of it. You say, well, I don't have to be a member of any church. I'm a Christian. I love all churches. And I've heard people say this. I love all churches. I can go to any church I like. And I love it. And it's lovely. And, uh, but they never actually have to deal with real people in real life. Because they're just all floating around all the time. Never involved. What's your attitude to worship? Gathering with God's people. Paul says in the church, don't be selfish. Seek to please your neighbor. Seek to build him up in, or her up in the faith. Welcome them. Receive them. Having a mindset of giving and serving others. And Paul says this obligation. This is the obligation that flows from the gospel. Well, that's the first thing. Obeying the command. Secondly, look to Christ in obeying the command. It's no surprise, actually, that Paul, when he's given a command, he actually causes at the same time to look to Christ, to turn to Christ. And he says this in verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. And here he's giving a quotation in the second half of the verse from Psalm 69, verse 9. It's an interesting quotation because as we turn to that psalm, I don't need to do it now, but if you turn to that psalm, you'll see that David is a psalm of David, it's about David. And, and what was David saying? Well, he was writing about the way in which he was suffering at the hands of others and about how he has even become a stranger to his friends. Why? Because, well, verse 9 At the beginning of verse 9, zeal for your house has consumed me. I am so zealous for the Lord that I seem to have alienated my friends. He's been utterly taken up with God and with the worship of God, with the honor of God. And if, if that means losing friends, then he's willing to do it so he can be taken up with God. And then Paul quotes the rest of the verse in Psalm 69.9, in the second half of verse 3. And it's, it's all about, it's applied to Jesus. The reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. You see, David is a type, is a, he's a picture, he's a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. And in the very life of David, you see this foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. 
that Jesus is the grace of David. And the things that David began to experience are a taste of the things that Jesus is going to experience. And in the end, Jesus is going, at the will of his Father, is going to be utterly desolated and isolated from the world. All have turned against him. Every single one. And his enemies are around him and his friends are having, have abandoned him. This is Jesus. And this is the reason why Paul speaks to these Roman Christians about their lives. He says, look at Jesus. How did he live his life? How did he give himself for you? See, the path of the Christian life follows closely the path of Jesus. Now, your suffering will never be redemptive. You have too many sins. But the path is still the same. You will suffer. And you will suffer to help others be built up. Part of your suffering, part of your struggle in the Christian life is so that you can help Brothers and sisters grow in the Christian life. Come to maturity. Be Christ-like. That's what we signed up for when we professed the faith. All of, all of you who stood at the front when you became members here, or maybe the day you were baptized, I don't know, but you, know, you come to the front, at some point you profess your faith. And you sign up for that. You sign up for it. You're grafted into the body of Christ. You become part of him. You're united to him. So that worship and gathering together is not just simply another activity that you do on a Sunday. But a new life that you now live with him. And with each other. And it's all for the good of us all. And so now we are called to that selfless service to one another we are called to look to the scriptures for hope and this is how Paul, this is what Paul has just done he's caused us to look to Jesus Christ to look to see Christ directly and then in verses 9 through 12 he, he does so again as he seeks to see from, uh, from, this, from those verses how Christ is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he draws from the Psalms, from Psalms 1817, Deuteronomy 32, and Isaiah chapter 11. You can see that in the cross references. And what is wonderful about this is, is how Paul is able to see that Christ alone, that in Christ alone, people from every nation, tribe, tongue, people group of the earth, are brought together in the glorious praise of God into one body in Jesus Christ. We sang that great hymn this morning. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. People from every nation. And here's a picture, I think, of the fruits of a new and glorious, self-giving, glory-giving, happy people in Jesus Christ. All because of him. You know, one of the delights of being in a church like this 
is that we have members from many different nations and cultures. But that's a glorious fruit of the work of Christ through his spirit and the gospel. People are gathered from every tribe and tongue and nation and bring to bring glory to God together. So we endure in selfless service, but we do so looking to Christ and feeding on Christ and his word. That brings us finally to a vision and a prayer. And so there are two points where Paul expresses a longing and a desire for the church. And I read it earlier, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant to you, you to live in such harmony with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So we've seen that that Paul gives imperatives, he gives commands to the Christians. Then he directs our attentions to, to Christ and how he has helped us and he is our strength and our stay. But we cannot do that on our own. We rely on God to bring his help to us. And the Father has to grant the resources necessary uh, to do it. That's why Paul comes in at these two points with an expression of, his de- of a, this desire for God to act. That God would come and act. And therefore I'm sure that this was the substance of Paul's prayers for the church in these three verses. And these should fuel our prayers as well. These wish prayers, if you like, of Paul. Uh, these uh, May God do this. May God do that. These should teach us how to, how to pray. Teach us that we should pray. Because we can't do it ourselves. We can't do any of this ourselves. I think I've told people many times that... I've told you many times of the people I've, I've met in Solihull who, who go to church in Solihull and in other places. And for the vast majority of them, the picture of their lives is this, that they are seeking to try to live a good life. They have no idea who Jesus is and what he's done. They think about the church in essentially political terms, uh, where they think about the problems and the contentious issues, maybe the decline of the church in the, in the United Kingdom. Think of all these big, big picture issues. But the picture is actually this. That the church of Jesus Christ is at every moment dependent on the God who has brought it into being. Is dependent at every moment on the Christ who has died for it. And that the picture of the Christian life is therefore a life of self, selfless devotion to him and to others. Loving and welcoming him and loving and welcoming others. Looking to God to grant the resources that are necessary to provide everything that the church cannot do for itself. Such so that before us is this, this wonderful picture of the church at peace with itself. And when we rest on Christ, when we trust in God, we find a church that's at peace with itself, that's in harmony, 
acts in love. And in doing so, it brings glory to God. So when visitors come in, they say, there's something amazing going on here. I don't know what it is, but there's something about these people, how they love one another, how they seem to be, just get on with one another. How glorious is the church of Jesus Christ. We have a a living hope in the glorious resurrection and of the new heavens and the new earth. That shapes everything for us. So look to God for this. Don't just try harder. Look to Christ in the scriptures for your encouragement. Look to God for your help, for his help for the things that you need. Look ahead to the glorious consummation of all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the the prayers which are laid out before us. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that for ourselves. And also, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Oh Lord, send your Holy Spirit amongst us. May we know his power that we might live in harmony, hope, peace, and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.